Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill and Matthew Darlitz. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. My name is Matthew Darlitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Science of Psychotherapy, and I'm here with Managing Editor Richard Hill. Hello, Matt. Here we are again. This is fabulous uh, and uh, so exciting to have another podcast. And, um, you know, we always leave it a little bit later, but let's do it straight up front. <laughs> if you love these podcasts and you love the information, uh, you can certainly come in and make sure we've got your, your email so we can send you out the information. But have a look at our academy because that's where you can get a hundred, a thousand times more information and access and uh, information, CEU points, wonderful mm. articles, wonderful videos, wonderful courses. So please and, and, do all and, that. And relationship. I have to emphasize, you know, what we really yeah. want to talk talk to you. Um, we've got discussion sort of bubbles in our courses where we we talk back and forward about things and discuss things. So it's it's very much about a tribe. It's about relationship as well as all of the information. And we'll be doing a few new things coming up very shortly about the about the book on that on that very frame. But now talking about the science of psychotherapy, who is one of our great inspirational and educational uh, founders that has been uh, underpinning a lot of our work over over all these years and who's still a great mate and a great friend and doing wonderful stuff, none other than the wonderful and amazing. Over to you, Matt. Louis Cosolino. Louis Cosolino. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm very early on, I remember years ago, I, actually I've got a poster up here on my wall with Lou in one of our very early issues and um, uh, used to be, you know, friend of Richard, Louis Cosolino, <laughs> but now I can happily friend say- Friend of Matt. You know, friend of uh, both of us. So. Absolutely. <laughs> he's, uh, and he's going to be doing, uh, he's coming out to Australia, which is really uh -huh. good. He's doing yep. lots of wonderful things over in America uh, uh, on, on occasion when when he's let out, but we're going to get him for a little while, which is really good, The at the Childhood Foundation Conference in August. And he's got some great topics, great titles that we want to explore. So that's what we're going to do, isn't it, Matt? Absolutely. So uh, without anything further to do, let's go across and say hi to Lou. Louis Cosolino, thanks again for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy. Great to see you. Same here. Good to see you guys. Yeah, good to see you uh, again, Lou. It's terrific. You're um, you're uh, looking fabulous as always, <laughs> but you're going to be out here uh, in just a Few, a few short months in August, doing the Childhood uh, Foundation Conference down in Melbourne. Don't miss it. And we wanted to catch up with you um, and, and just explore some of the topics because, goodness gracious me, four presentations, uh, many hours. We're actually thinking of calling it the, the Lou Cosolino Show. But there's some okay. other great people. I mean, uh, you know, Ed Trotic's going to be out here. The Porges will be out here. I mean, it's really fabulous. And we just wanted to work through a couple of the uh, the topic headings uh, and, and give us a sight. But I'll tell you the one that grabbed my attention first. I'm looking there. You've got an opening plenary uh, and it's called the executive brains with an S on the end. And I went, hello, is that a typo or is that really interesting? And I have a feeling it's really interesting. Do you want, can we start on that one? Absolutely, yeah. Well, it, it could be determined whether it's really interesting, but I can certainly share. <laughs> I can share with you what uh, what my thinking has been. It, it's been sort of a long um, 
this whole notion about executive functioning and the executive brain um, has been sort of something that had been stuck in my craw. I'm not exactly sure what my craw is, but it, <laughs> you know, but it has been stuck in it ever since I began doing research, um, probably in the late 1970s, with uh, with uh, clients with schizophrenia and uh, thinking about their you know, how their brains work, how their brains don't work, the difficulties they have and all. And that was really my starting point. The first articles I ever read um, in neuroscience were a couple by a fellow named uh, Carl Prebram, who um, used to be a uh, very, uh, well, he, you know, he was brilliant, but he was also fairly exploratory. He didn't, he, he sort of went far afield with his thoughts. And I was reading his articles about, uh, you know, problems in um, in the hippocampus with uh, w- with rats and the, and the behavioral changes they displayed. And I realized how similar in some ways that those problems in sort of structure and focus and maintaining set and navigating the environment were similar to the things I was seeing with my schizophrenic clients. And so that's when I started uh, developing this notion that so maybe the hippocampus is somehow involved in schizophrenia, and I'm sure it is, as are a hundred other areas of the brain. But back then at the beginning, I was looking like most uh, newbies do. They look for the spot in the brain where a disorder lives, Mm, right? mm. So that was my naivete, but it was a great introduction for me. But anyway, this notion about executive functioning continued through my graduate program and and through the decades of my practice. Most of the time... um, when people are referred with executive functioning problems in quotes, it's because either they've had brain trauma or because they are not doing well in school and mm. the, teacher, the teachers start questioning. So they, you know, they make the parents pay this inordinate amount of money to have these uh, neuropsychological test batteries done. And, um, it's, uh, and what you get back from them is that there are executive functioning deficits which basically I've learned over the years means absolutely nothing when you mm, get that right. feedback from a neuropsychologist, unless, of course, there's some organic problem. The, uh, the thing was is that um, kids could be, a kid or adult can be really good at what they do, and, but they may not be able to actually execute it or do it, or when they're at school, it may not work, or when they graduate and you know, get a job, they may know the industry really well, but for some reason they end up getting fired over and over again. They don't, you know, don't get promoted. So the question really, you know, that started with, well, it's not you can't really think of executive function as a, a cognitive, a solely cognitive process. So that's where that's where I, it, it sort of it dawned on me, and I think certainly the work of Antonio Damasio back mm-hmm. in the '80s and the '90s was very, you know, very helpful to, to move that forward. Um, but what I started thinking about is that um, there are a number of different networks that have to both develop and integrate with each other and kind of interdigitate and work well together in order for someone not only to be smart and have good problem-solving skills and be able to think abstractly, but also be able to take that into the classroom or into their occupation or their life and utilize it. So that's when I started thinking about it. And a piece of the puzzle was um, was when, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, uh, it's called the P-Fit theory of, uh, of intelligence. Yeah, 
the PFIT theory is, you know, well, let me start a step backwards and stop me if I get into too much weed. If you're not interested, your audience probably won't be either. So just say, stop, shut up and talk about something else. I'm going good okay. now. Keep going, Lou. So far, so good. Okay. So the, um, you know, the, the, the uh, standard dogma of executive functioning was that it was centered in the prefrontal cortex mm-hmm. and that um, that was the, that's where our sense of self identity, our ability, the difference between humans and, you know, other primates existed in the prefrontal cortex. But then there was this research uh, that you might find it interesting uh, looking it up. It's P-FIT in capital letters. And what that means is par- a parietal frontal intelligence theory. Yeah. And so the, what, they, what these researchers found, and it makes so much sense neurologically, is they discovered that you, you, can, um, you can develop executive functioning problems by either having damage to the frontal lobes, to the parietal lobes, or to the connective material between them. Mm-hmm. Right? And so this now is an expansion of the standard dogma of that kind of executive functioning that's involved with navigating space and time and problem solving and abstract reasoning. And it makes especially sense, a special sense because the frontal lobes evolved, especially the orbital and medial frontal lobes, they evolved out of the amygdala, right? And the dorsal and lateral are expansions of the, hippoc- of the hippocampus and the temporal lobes. And so and they're specifically organized to process time and our conscious experience of sequencing in time, right? The parietal lobe, on the other hand, evolved out of the hippocampus, and the hippocampus is a cognitive map for the external environment, but the parietal lobe is, has many inter, interwoven maps. There's a map of the body, there's a map of the world, there's a map of, the, of our bodies in the world, and there's also a map in imagination, of the world. This was the part of Einstein's brain that differentiated it from, mm. you know, from other brains was his inferior parietal cortex and his ability to, you know, to imagine abstract. I mean, how the hell else could you come up with relativity? Certainly doesn't make <laughs> any sense walking down the street, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so um, I think the first piece of this was the expansion of this notion of um, the, fr- the uh, executive functioning being you know, housed in the, in the prefrontal cortex to realize that it's much more of a, of a, of a parietal frontal function that needs to be created. So that, that was the first piece of it for me in the expansion. The second piece of it was that I realized that for a lot of my clients, the reason why they might be very bright, they might have a very high IQ, but they're not able to really bring it into their job or school because they're all, they have all of this affective dysregulation, right? And we know that amygdala activation inhibits parietal frontal functioning. And so it, it dawned on me that, you know, the amygdala was our first uh, executive system, right? It's the executive system that still exists in, in you know, every, every mammal at least has it, and fish and reptiles have it as well in some form or other, our fish have a little different uh, setup, but it serves, a, the, the areas serve the same purpose, right? And so I realized then that this parietal frontal system that evolved out of the limbic system really had a precursor for executive functioning, which is the amygdala. And the amygdala executive system, which I call the first executive system, is still strong and it has the ability, it's anti-correlational with the parietal and frontal lobes. 
So when we get aroused, when we get activated, when we get triggered, whatever cliche word you want to use, right? Um, what happens is we get dumber yeah. because our brain, our yeah. cortices get inhibited by that. So I said, sure, that's a really good model um, or a good way to think about it. And that's one idea I've been working on over the years. We've got to expand parietal frontal um, processing to really understand more how we navigate space-time, right? And we have to realize that the amygdala is an executive system, right? And it maintains veto power. So those two right. things. And with a lot of my, you know, a lot of this, also like the corporate coaching clients that I have, they, if they've gotten to me, it usually means they're very successful and they really know their industry. So their parietal frontal systems are great, but they often get referred because they scream and yell at their clients and they drink too much and they don't have affect regulation. And my job is to kind of calm them down somehow, right? I have to be their amygdala whisperer and, and try to teach them how to do that for themselves. But then, you know, as I, as I, you know, as things move forward, especially over the last 15 or so years with the sort of the uncovering of the DMN and the, um, the significance that the DMN brings in as far as those things having to do with self-reflective capacity, self-awareness, the model thinking of the self, um, and also empathy and compassion and care for other people. I thought, well, you know, this is probably an executive system, too. It's probably a later evolving executive system. Perhaps in some ways it's later evolving because it does evolve critical, critical areas, or I should say primitive areas, like the anterior cingulate, the orbital medial areas, um, the posterior cingulate, areas of the uh, insula in the front and the, uh, the, the parietal areas in the back and some visual areas. But when I thought, you know, in thinking about this for my corporate clients, especially, and then I brought it into psychotherapy, I thought of that, you know, that might be the third executive system. That might be the third executive brain because we're social critters. And in order to succeed in the world and navigate the world, we need to be connected to the group mind and we need to have self-reflective capacity to know who we are. So going back to your question initially, Richard, thinking of the executive brains, I'm thinking of these three systems, right, that are um, the, the amygdala is anti-correlational with both the PFIT system and this DMN. So just again, you know, as, the, as we get aroused, as, the auto, as autonomic arousal increases, what you see is an inhibition of these other executive networks, right? Yeah. The, the, between the DMN and the parietal frontal areas, there is some anti-correlational processing going on, but it's not complete. And when you think about what we're trying to do in therapy, right, thinking of these three executive brains, one of the things that we do primarily sort of uh, first off is we develop a connection. We try to make someone feel calm and safe. So what we're doing is that amygdala whispering. Mm. We've got to calm down that first system because that first system is going to interfere with the other two. And then what we do, I think, at least what I do in my therapy, is I toggle back and forth between talking about things outside of the therapy and relationships and the past and memory, which are the domain of the frontal parietal, you know, the cortical areas, and then also self-reflection. And looking at this and having and developing insight and expanding that. So we know that there's the DMN and the 
frontal parietal systems are not so they're somewhat anti-correlational but i would imagine the optimal therapeutic activation would be a synergy or a connection between those two so we can toggle back and forth between self-reflection reflection on our lives self-reflection to build a higher level of awareness relating those two and and this so that's a thumbnail yeah mm-hmm. and it and it brings you know this i mean certainly um you know i remember Way back, you know, Damasio and various areas talking that area of the the inferior parietal or what we called the pecunius was you know an old an old term that that place of an of an eye of a of an eye person uh, and that connection is there and they've been talking about those sort of areas but this also brings now to mind some of the things that we've been hearing from Joseph Ledoux of course you did a lot of stuff with the amygdala and um uh, and Richard Brown and talking about this uh, this uh, idea of uh, higher order representations and sort of a subcortical higher order representation which has uh, additional sort of second order higher representations as you move into other parts to the of the of the utilizing the these components of the of the brain but it's really really interesting and uh, you know please comment on that but i just want to chuck in the third thing for the stuff is this this idea that we've named things to divide them and separate them which is the scientific you know the scientific the negative scientific tradition and this idea of the this executive network which is different from the default mode network and then the salience network which we also know that their operations interactively and moving between one and the other is very similar to the necessity of moving to left and right hemisphere uh, this this play that we're utilizing a system that likes to work itself and has worked itself out into these frameworks and to bring it out and say no they're not separate is i think the the next most important step of um of what we're doing in the science of psychotherapy yeah. mm. i think it goes back to the notion of neurodynamics mm. yeah and it isn't you know i think the heroic phase of neuroscience was finding brain behavior relationships with individual regions and putting a flag you know planting a flag and, and naming it and putting right. a fence around it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think that we're, hopefully we're, I think we're in the next stage now when we're understanding more the interact. In other words, the number of systems or the number of areas that can be evolved in any one of these functions. And then at a, at a higher level, how do they need to integrate and communicate with each other in order to, um, you know, to, to, to drive optimal functioning. Right. Right. Yeah, so that's um, that's really interesting. This toggling between the parietal frontal and the default mode, you said to increase awareness, and and I'm guessing also to increase a, a sense of uh, flexibility, in and uh, to be agile mentally to go between the two. Right. Well, I think that with the, one of the things that DMN seems to be highly involved in, along with that, you know, those uh, inferior parietal areas. Is the is is the ability to time travel? Is mm. to imagine future, to remember outcomes that haven't happened yet, right? And to and to uh, to have conse- to hold a hold a thought of a consequence in the present that's going to occur in the future. For example, another thing I think related to that is to be able to try on different scenarios. You know, mm-hmm. people that have executive damage often they can't imagine alternative scenarios. In other words, they're very stimulus bound, right? 
So mm. you, if you show them an ink blot, what you know what they say it's a you know it's an ink blot. That's what they say it is. Yeah. Say, well, what does it look like? It looks like an ink blot. But this is a picture, and it's kind of demonstrated. It should look like something else. It says, all right, it looks like a picture of an ink blot, right? So that's that concrete set. But what the I think what the DMN and the parietalobes allow us to do is to imagine alternative realities and then time travel involving to the, the, the you know uh, frontal lobes allows us to imagine outcomes and predict future and develop uh, different strategies and I, I think one of the one of the hallmarks that I'm seeing uh, I think that there's a real there's a continuing deficit of this with uh, internet addiction which is the ability to have an internal space a safe internal space where you can retreat to and process thoughts and feelings, regulate emotions, uh, sort of like a safe haven inside of yourself. It's like you have an inner John Bowlby who's sitting there waiting to, you know, to, to where you go, you waddle over and you put your arm on his knee and he'll pat you on the head, right? Yeah, we, we used, to, I used to talk about this in acting, uh, where what was wonderful about doing these, these, these characters uh, and they actually can develop uh, a, a great positive uh, strength in your capacities to understand yourself is because you did have to figure out a, a person that you had to return to yeah and and a safe space that you could that you could go to and very often when you're when you're performing and everything goes wrong um, uh, you know some disaster happens on, on on the stage like someone coming up and disagreeing with what you've just said as we've seen recently the uh, th there's this safe place, there's this idea of the safe of the safe space, the safe person, and what's missing. This is what's missing in uh, in certain um, conditions that we've we've described and named. But they're they're we, this describing and naming is annoying. But certainly in things like autistic areas and in some degree in ADHD, where there's this um, and schizophrenia to some extent as well where that ability to find that space is is diminished for various reasons and differently in each person. But this internet addiction is, and I've been saying this for some years, is almost, um, you know, autisticating people. It also, it's just, it's removing them from their capacity to find their own safe sense of being. Um, and uh, uh, so it's great, you know, interesting to hear you bring that up. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. Well, you know, I think we're, and, and it, it accounts, this model accounts for a lot more of the reasons why people have difficulty functioning at the level we think they should be able to. So um, it's been very, yeah. very helpful in coaching. Because what I do with, with uh, people that come in for coaching is I really evaluate these three systems. Uh, and for most of the, most of the clients that I see, their second executive is fine, which is because they wouldn't be seeing me if they weren't successful, mm. right, in that regard. But usually it's either their affect regulation that isn't, a, that isn't adequate for them, um, their self-soothing capaci capacities, or they're, they're disconnected from, I mean, they, they don't have what looks like a very uh, well-functioning DMN network and those functions. And you see this also, I've seen this over and over again in post-traumatic stress disorder, where it's not really in the DSM. The DSM never seems to know what it's doing. It just wanders from pillar to post. But 
one of the things, if you have dysregulated um, amygdala activation and, and hypoarousal, what you're going to have is an inhibition of the, of the default mm. mode network and the ability to connect to the group mind, the ability to really empathize and resonate with other people. And I've heard over and over again people who have come back from combat, they say that they see their kids and they see their wives or their husbands and they don't, they don't feel the connection mm. that mm. they used to feel. Right. It's yeah. almost like half breast syndrome where people come home and they they their their relatives look perfectly uh, normal, but they know it's not them because they no longer have the feeling of familiarity. Right. And so that I think has yet. I mean, the DSM has some wacky thing about cognitive distortions, but it's uh, it's a theoretical and it's pretty misguided. I think that once the DMN is appreciated more and understood more. Hopefully it'll make it. It's make it. It'll make its way into the thinking about all anxiety disorders, mm. because they're all going to be inhibiting it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. So, so we better uh, scoot around a bit more because Matt, um, Matt, and I are very excited to see the title of your workshop um, in that beautiful broader thing that you've been talking to us about forever. Anyway, that we need to broaden our understanding and and our appreciation, which is supported. The work we've been doing, but it's it's this lovely workshop, full day on the science of psychotherapy, where you go through this this wider range of of uh, of things that we need to know about, which uh, of course we've tried to do in our book as well. So, what's that going to be like for for the the, the lovely the viewers that come to <laughs> that come to attend? Well, I think you know the um, the the basic philosophical or theoretical premise behind it is that. Um, a psychotherapy was, uh, you know, evolved or, or emerged because we um, we have psychological distress and difficulties, and that a lot of those difficulties are the results of natural uh, processes of natural selection that were meant to solve problems in the past, but have created problems in the present. Mm. Right. So it's it's really sort of a um, a smorgasbord of those sorts of things. I'm thinking about, uh, you know, instead of thinking in terms of uh, diagnoses or treatments or or that focus, thinking in terms of how have we as human beings been set up to struggle with anxiety, shame, confusion, misunderstanding, misinterpretation. And the, um, the common note is that I want to tie it to how the brain, you know, how the mind emerges from the brain and how the brain organizes and constructs our experience of reality, but then target specific things that I think people would be interested interested in. So one example certainly is the, you know, one that we're all familiar with is the fact that we have this first executive, this amygdala system that evolved at a time when we didn't have much of a cortex or culture, or language, or taxes, or traffic, mm. right? And so that's a sort of a good example of uh, that. It's almost like um, it, it's kind of like the like a, like the Paleolithic diet. Like our digestive systems evolved when we didn't need every day, and we had to expend a lot of energy to get the food. So we were probably in much better shape then than we are now, you know, as a, as a species. And so it's a, a similar model in that way. Things that people might not, um, you know, that might they might find interesting, has to do with um, 
with thinking in terms of the organization, the primitive organization of social groups before language and culture, right? And so what I, you know, my thoughts about that lately have been that um, are that back before we had language or very sophisticated organizations, when we were relatively primitive mammals, what natural selection did was that it took our fear circuitry, or it took this, you know, our first executive, and what it did was it bootstrapped it to create social organization. Mm. So what what that did was, you know, uh, it, it the notion or the the reality of an alpha emerged. And what an alpha is is an organizing principle for group organization, right? So it could be male, female. It can be based on physical strength or, or longevity or intelligence or whatever. It's different across different species, right? But the problem, I mean, the solution back then without any, when we didn't have a cortex, was to be afraid of the person or the being who was sort of the strongest or the most powerful or was born into that position. And so everyone looks to the alpha because they're afraid of, you know, of exile, you know, being ostracized um, and all of that. And that served as a very primitive way to organize a group. So the alpha got attention because everyone else had anxiety activation related to their presence. So what they did then, the group followed. So again, very, very basic, but without a cortex, that's not such a bad bootstrap by, by evolution. The problem is now we have, with a, with a cortex and culture, we also have individual identity. We have self-image. We have, self have uh, you know... Uh, ruminative capacity. So that fear related to the evaluation of others now manifests as core shame. Mm. So we all have the, we all have this feeling of not being good enough because most, you know, except psychopaths and, you know, there are, there are some groups of people that don't have this and there are, there are some alphas, I would say, you know, but very small percentage of the population are alphas. That's the way it's supposed to be, you know, we're all told we should be alphas, but only a very few of us are, right? And so, but what that manifests in the rest of us is we're always looking to other people for reality and, that, you know, and, and our, our own evaluation. So we live through the eyes of other people, which really puts us in exile from ourselves. Right? Yeah. So yeah. I think that I spent a lot of years trying to find the reason for core shame in someone's history in their individual history. But I've sort of come to come to believe that we all have core shame based on our evolutionary history and that some of us are, some of our experiences will tend to amplify it. And certainly if we're prone towards anxiety disorders or dependency or those sorts of things, that whole beta status will be amplified. And for some people, it's almost like it makes them, a, they sort of have omega status. Because they're every, even the, they're even the betas to the betas, right? Yeah. So this is something that we tend not to talk about in psychotherapy. I'm not sure, you know, maybe ethologists talk about it or primatologists or other groups. But this is an incredibly important and central part of all of our experiences. And this core shame that Brenny Brown makes so much money talking about is an offshoot of this, is feeling... You know, in AA, they talk about comparing your inside to other people's outside, um, all the Internet stuff, the social media where you're constant, where you're trolling other people's pages 
and then half an hour after you get offline, you start becoming depressed, right? All of this stuff is, is not a deficit in you because of your individual history. It, we're hardwired for these things, and we've got to figure out conscious ways to counterbalance this stuff. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, what I was talking about in the Win or Loser World uh, book I did in 2006, not really understanding what I was talking about, but knowing what the experience was, this, you know, this this effect of externalised evaluation. And uh, I know Steve Porges started to talk about this after he's been talking about it a bit more recently as well. And uh, and what we were talking about just before that safe that safe sense of place of self inside, uh, the uh, uh, that of course is is eradicated by when you're constantly looking for that safe sense of self outside, and it becomes um, uh, institutionalized. We build it into our culture. We build it into our education system. We build it into our business systems, and um, and so suddenly somebody says, "Oh yes, but." But uh, I'm who I am is enough. I'm good enough. But then, if I don't get good enough marks, I don't get into the university. I don't get into. So there's these constant, um, uh, uh, I suppose, inconsistencies and incongruities with the with the attempt to be self sufficient and self engaged when it is constantly being externally um, questioned and uh, uh, altered. So well, there's, there's so brilliant. much so much yeah. social pressure, isn't there, to be the alpha when like Lou, you said, there's only meant to be very few. Uh, and looking at the young mm. people today, they're looking at, you know, social media influencers and the pressure is that everyone should be a social media influencer. You know, that's kind of mm. like one of the, you know, the, the contemporary alphas. Um, and yet it's, that's not the way it's meant to be. We, uh, we're not satisfied with our station in life, so to speak. And, right. and are we doing this vicariously now with, with other people? What, what do you think, Lou? When you say vicariously with other people, what do you mean? Well, well, we we look to we look to somebody else being an alpha, and then attach ourselves to them, and then adorn ourselves with. The, we do this politically. We we sort of say, yeah. "I'm a so and so person," or "I'm a so and so supporter." We do it um, uh, with influencers. We, you know, we become the people who are part of the influence. We become fans of things like that. Yeah. Well, think yeah, think about think about Stockholm syndrome. Yeah, right? we fall in love with our captors. And so the drive, the, the the primitive social organizational drives, are are still inside of us. Mm. They don't necessarily make sense, you know, especially if you're someone's prisoner. But they're there, and they're very real. And it's the same. I, I've worked with a lot of uh, people who have been in relationships with either partners who who are violent, who abuse them, or people that are in relationships with borderline individuals. And they feel like they're taken captive. Their mm. energy is depleted. Their reality is distorted. Um, it's, uh, it's it's the, there are these very primitive uh, relational dynamics through that are, that get activated through sociostatic processes. And you know it's related to emotional contagion. With uh, I mean, if you work with depressed people, if you work with I mean, you you laugh more at a movie and you find it funnier if you're with other people that are laughing. So our, it's not clear where, our, you know, where we end and other people begin. Mm. And it, I think this whole thing about how we, I, we um, idolize celebrities, for example, or, or are able to, you know, I mean, I remember being in Manchester 
um, England one night after there was a, uh, a soccer match. And I think there were like, you know, 15 people killed or something just in the after party. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, these types of group phenomena and, and alliances with teams or with wars or with armies. I mean, look at all the people in the Ukraine that are willing to stand there and get blown up by missiles, you know, for, for uh, country and, and fellowship. I'm not, you know, I'm not criticizing it. I'm just saying it's so powerful. Mm. Yeah, yeah. we are moved even to mortal danger uh, to to sustain and uh, maintain these things which become incongruous. And of course, but when we get a really strong goal, when we get a really strong framework to put everything behind it seems to feel good. Uh, and uh, and uh, sadly, this is what um, uh, public relations, uh, Bernays and, you know, advertising, that's been a clear understanding they've had for a long time to make their product the good product and by wearing that, eating that, using that, that you are actually achieving some kind of individual enhancement. And, uh, mm, gee, you know, we're, we're, we're still... We're, <laughs> I keep saying I do hope we that reincarnation is true so that I can come back in a few hundred thousand years when our species has actually evolved usefully, you know, We've got a lot of things that aren't organised, that aren't together, that are still still struggle with each other and battle with each other. Lou, you don't strike me as the angry kind of guy, but you're going to do a presentation on the importance of getting angry. So, what's that all about? Well, what I you know what I've seen is that, and it, this sort of connects to the the um, alpha beta conditioning is that there are, and I was, I was working with a CEO this morning that is in this position. He, he, um, he was very uh, dominated by his father, told that he wasn't going to be very successful. You know, the typical competitive father syndrome, right? So now he has a business that's the same business as his father has, but he really can't move forward with it, you know? And so he's been in therapy forever, and his therapist, no matter what, the therapist says, well, just go meditate and that'll help. So he meditates and he just, you know, nothing changes. He just meditates, right? Yeah. And one of the things I think, going back to the previous model, talking about um, evolution bootstrapping the autonomic nervous system to mm. create alphas and betas, you know, leaders and followers, I think that every one of us in our family are set up that kind of dynamic that, and, you know, I guess you would talk about the counter, uh, you know, super ego in Freud's terms, or whatever the power, you know, the power dynamics. So I think that what happens for a lot of us is that our families create betas, and it can create it because we're domineered. It, it it can be created because there's psychopathology or addiction in our family, so we become the caretaker or the one that doesn't express our feelings and all of that. And so I remember um, years ago, one of my therapists who was a, who was a, uh, he was, he was very much into, into boating. He said, you know, he, he was telling me that I was too nice for my own good, right? That I was always trying to find the good thing, you know, like trying to find the bright side and the silver lining of the clouds and all of that. And he says, no, this is, it's not going to work for you. It's like, because what happens, imagine you're on a boat and as a kid, you weren't allowed to be angry. So you threw your anger overboard, right? And you thought that was it. But the anger has a chain attached to it that also is attached to your assertiveness, mm. right? 
And so then your assertiveness goes overboard. But that's not it. There's a chain still. And the chain rattles around. And what goes overboard next are your boundaries. Right? And then there's more chain. And finally, your power goes overboard. Right? So right. the way I conceive of this is that we learn to dampen down our autonomic nervous system. Right? We go into kind of when, when there's conflict or danger or whatever, we go into this parasympathetic mode, right? Which is sort of wait and see, um, be careful, don't make waves. But what that does is, you know, it's a strategy during childhood that actually turns into a kind of a beta lifestyle, mm. right? And so what I try to do with my clients is I try to get them to get angry, Right. To, to like they did back in the 60s. Remember, we used to beat, to beat the shit out of yeah. each other with those pillows. Right. Um, that went away. You know, back in the 60s, it was OK. 90 percent of therapists were men back then. And we liked beating the shit out of each other with patakas. But now 90 percent of the therapists are women and they're justifiably afraid of, you know, bringing out anger in men. And women also, you know, they uh, there are different ways of interacting or settling, you know, uh, this, that, and the other thing. But I got to tell you, even with my female clients, the executives, it's like they swallow their words. They sit in meetings where they're smarter than all the, all the guys and they don't say anything. And I've got to figure out, you know, with each of them, it's like, how do I get them angry? Right. Mm -hmm. And usually their concern is, well, um, I don't want to, I don't want to be out of control. And so at that point, I have to say, listen, let's make a clear separation here. Rage is what you're afraid of, yes. right? Rage is a right hemisphere, out of control reaction to being cornered or being helpless, right? Anger evolved along, it's a right hem, it's a left hemisphere emotion, it evolved along with attachment because not only do you have to nurture your children and love them, you also have to protect them and you have to protect yourself as well. Mm. And a lot of my clients, a lot of people I know are really good. If you, if you go near their child, they'll, they'll rip your face off, but you can do anything to them and they lay down. Right. So it's sort of like this dissociative partition for them. They were, they weren't, they were given permission to take care of others, but not themselves. And if you're a woman, it's, you don't want to be a bitch. If it's a man, you don't want to, you don't want people to send you to anger management classes, you know, or whatever. But the autonomic nervous system has two balancing opposing forces and you can't give up one completely. Right. Yep, You've got to have both of them and they have to be integrated and they have to be balanced. And so I think defining carefully what contactful anger is mm. and associating it with boundaries and assertiveness and power, it has been an incredibly important shift. Now, that doesn't mean people didn't have trauma and all sorts of bad things in their lives, right? But this is, this is just human. This is the human condition, mm. right? So, yeah, you might have some extra things to work through with this if someone has had a particularly traumatic or bad history. But this is all of our – this is the bed we all sleep in. It does seem to me, though, that we live in a rather uh, fragile kind of – you know, society, it's not very robust when it comes to someone raising their voice or expressing anger. So and I, I'm saying this is the, the I mean, pendulum how swing. Do you, how do you react to someone like Putin? Do yeah. you negotiate or do you just you just hit him back harder than he's hit you? It's right. like every bully in high school. 
They never respect you until you fight back. But even simply that that last sentence of uh, uh, of, uh, President Biden in his speech the other day, where it was just uh, really an angry response. It was was that strong emotion, you know, for God's sake, this man can't keep, can't can't stay in power. And uh, it was, it really was more an emotive, uh, you know, sort of felt experience, felt sentence, yet, of course, it was pulled apart for, for being technical and deliberate and and, in, and with some kind of secondary intention. But, uh, you know, you see a few other things. I, I mean, do you, you don't want to go on about it, but Will Smith the other day at the academies, uh, you, you go, but we had a, a, a situation where we had uh, a, a Australian of the Year that was uh, shifting, changing bat, batons to the, to the next one, and there was a convenient... Uh, a photo opportunity with the prime minister, and she doesn't think the prime minister has done a good job at all. So she sat with a scowl on her face and said, "No, I am angry. At I am still angry at this thing." And of course, it was criticised. And uh, and I think the point of what you're bringing across, which I think is more important, sure there's criticism, sure there's agreement, sure there's disagreement. What it is is it's not understood. And that must be the value of going to this 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 really important workshop down in in good old Australia in August. Mm. I so, like that tie-in, Richard. That was a good one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what are we here for? Yeah. Right. So quick, tie quickly you before we double your root beer. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I'm I'm an old actor. I'm, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm the old school. Now, before we finish up, let's just touch on the heroic journey. Um, just very briefly, Lou, what, what's that all about? Well, it's, um, I think it's, it's thinking about using the heroic journey simultaneously as a model for the therapeutic process. This is Campbell's hero's yeah. journey? Yep. Uh, yeah. And also using it as the model for the growth of the therapist and the development of the therapist. Mm-hmm. And so often when we're doing our work, we realize that we're on the same path as our clients. Sometimes we find that they're far ahead of us, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and we feel sort of fraudulent trying to lead them through things. And so I guess, you know, it's a, what I really, when I think about this, uh, this presentation, from my perspective, it's really what I wanted to do is kind of a pep talk and something encouraging for therapists. Because I know, right. you know, I supervise a lot of therapists all over the world via Zoom. And I know how isolated they are, how afraid they are how insecure they are. They're always looking to like, oh my God, there's another set of letters I can get after my name. I better get them, you know, in order to be legitimate. And, um, you know, to where their, their, um, their, their signature at the bottom of their page is longer than the emails that they send. Right. But it really, (laughs) it really isn't, uh, you know, it's, it's that, um, searching for something that really is inside of you, you know, going back to the DMN and all of that and the, and the all of this stuff ties together. You know, it's all. I'm basically giving the same talk in, in you know, from 20 different directions with different language and different science behind it. But um, yeah, it's it's the um, it's giving. I think I want to give therapists, especially younger therapists, uh, permission to not know what they're doing and to understand that feeling like a fraud is more a part of this biological inheritance then it's something that they have to take too seriously or make their identity. And, um, and then they feel insecure to the degree to which it drives their learning. 
Yeah. But insecurity yeah. only has so much value. Well, I think this this thing that you're talking about it is this idea that you can look at things from many different directions uh, because essentially it's all about us. It's the, the person is in the centre. I mean, we, we've tried to say that in the, the beginning of our book, sort of saying, okay, our book's got lots of chapters, got lots of sections, got lots of bits and pieces, but that's us just taking a whole person and looking at a small section for a moment. We immediately want you to come back out. And it's a beautiful rundown that you've got there, sort of, you know, ending with that uh, heroic journey where you're offering back something, you know, for them to take positively away after, you know, beating them around the head with um, their, their brains are in weird systems and they've got to get angry. And um, <laughs> but it's but it is going through. It's it's a, your presentations. I can see now are a whole process. Uh, if by by going uh, start to finish, and uh, and I look forward to to being there and 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 going through that. There's there's a million things to that you haven't said, uh, but and I want to hear some of those. So that's that was fantastic. Thanks, Lou. Brilliant. Well, thank you, Lou, for spending the time with us today, and we do look forward to you coming out to Oz. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, we just do encourage people to uh, connect with uh, all of your resources, of which there are many, and we'll have links in the show notes. Um, but for today, thanks again, Lou. It's great to catch up. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to talk to you. We'll see you see you soon. All right. Take care. Bye. Oh, Matt, Lou's, Lou's doing some new things. He no, is. He's developing stuff. He's developed stuff. He's he's got some great ideas there that um, that I'm sitting there going, oh, I haven't heard that before, mm, and mm. Uh, you know all that stuff talking about the the executive networks. Uh, I mean, this is this is great. I know John Arden was starting to look at the interaction between the the, the those those networks. Uh, this parietal cortex, really interesting. Ah, mm. uh, oh, great stuff. Yeah, uh, I hadn't actually heard this this relationship between the amygdala, the parietal frontal, the default mode, and and how all of that works together. So yeah, first really time I've heard that. Yeah, yeah. brilliant. Mm. Okay, doke. Well, um, as we said, you know, Lou is coming to Australia, so you know, check out that conference. Uh, we'll leave a link in the show notes. And once again, if you appreciate what we're doing here on the science of psychotherapy please come along and be a, a part of the tribe at the scienceofpsychotherapy.net. And that's our academy site. And that's where we have um, a wealth of knowledge and information and wisdom for you, as well as relationship. As I was saying in the introduction, we just love to be able to talk to you guys and, um, and generally chat about the science of psychotherapy. And of course, the Science of Psychotherapy, The Practitioner's Guide, the book is out. Go to Amazon or all those great places. We'll have some links for that also in uh, the website. You can't miss it. We're, we're very keen for people to get that. But thanks very much, everybody. Uh, and thanks for joining us again. Okay, we'll catch you next time. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. For more great science, go to thescienceofpsychotherapy.com.